Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We do have just an incredible privilege to be able to worship Jesus together this Christmas season. And I'm so thankful uh, that we're here today. I'm so thankful that we've got time together this month to be able to do that and to lift his name up. And we're going to be doing that in our, our, our services in a, a series that we've, we've called, as you saw there, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. And today we're going to be beginning that series by talking about the one that we adore. But before we, before we get to that, I, I want to just play a hypothetical out with you guys for just a minute. I want to just, just, ima- just have you use your imagination this morning just a little bit. I know it's 10.50, but believe me, they did it at 9.30. You guys have an hour and a half head start on them, all right? So you ready? Here we go. I want you to do that. I want you to think for a moment, who is the most famous person in this town? Who would you define as the most famous person in Norman? Just think for a moment. Get that, that picture in your head. Uh, for some of you, that person is Toby. A few of you had that thought, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Maybe for a few others of you, it wasn't Toby, maybe it was, it was Bob. Maybe Bob is the most famous person. Or for others, maybe it's not Toby or Bob. Uh, you're going to go back to the 70s and 80s, and it's Barry. Um, or, or maybe for others, it's just, you're going to go even further back than that, and you're going to go different sport. You're going to go global Olympics, Nadia Komenich. Um, I don't know you know, who it is for you that, that came to your mind, but, but one of these people surely would qualify, and maybe you have somebody that you would say trumps all of them. Uh, but imagine that there is this famous person, and imagine that today at lunch, you go out, and you go wherever you're going to go for lunch. You go to Dickie's, you go to McDonald's, uh, you go over on Campus Corner someplace. You go out to your favorite place for lunch, and you are in line when you look up and, and right in front of you in line is this most famous person. Now, let's keep playing this hypothetical. How many of you would say something to that person right in front of you in line? Dan Bass, God bless you, man. You're the only guy in the room uh, who, who would do it. But, I, you know, let's just say for a moment, it's a hypothetical. We're not really risking anything. We're all going in, all right? So you're going to talk to this person, famous person right in front of you, most famous person in the city. You decide to strike up a conversation. You have two minutes with them. And you kind of, you know, wow them in the conversation. At the end of the conversation, you say this really awkward thing. You say, hey, I hope we can connect again sometime. Um, now, how many of you think that they really want to connect with you again sometime? Besides Dan. Uh, how many of you think uh, that, that, that they are, are really going to want to connect with you? Well, okay, it's a hypothetical. So let's, let's kind of up the ante. Let's make it a little more fun. So let's say that you initiate with them. You say, I want to connect with them. And they say, sure, I'd love to connect with you. And they follow by pulling out their business card, flipping it over, and on the back, writing their cell phone number, handing it to you. And you immediately text them. And so they have your number. And they save it. You watch them. They type it in. And you, you've got their number. They've got your number. But it doesn't stop there. Not only do they give you their cell phone number, but, but this most famous person in town looks at you and says, hey, where do you live? And it's a hypothetical, so you're not freaked out. And you say back to them, I live in this house in this neighborhood. And, and when, they, when they hear that, they go, you know what? There's a house for sale next door to you. 
I'm going to buy it. I'm going to move in. And then a few days later, the, the, the sold sign is in the yard and the moving truck's out there and they're moving in and they come over and they bring cookies and they bring a key and they give you a key to their house and they say, hey, my, mi casa es su casa, whatever you want, come on over. Now, let me ask you, if all of that plays out that way, do you think they really want to get to know you? You think they, they really want to connect with you? Yeah, it plays out a little different, doesn't it? Now, I go through that story, which is absolutely ridiculous, and, and if it happens to you today, call me. I'd love to just hang out and, and find out this magical, mystical life that you live. Um, but I, I go through that today because there's a, a situation that is, that is real and that is serious, um, and that is as it relates to our relationship with God. See, many of us feel like our relationship with God is as shallow as somebody we bump into in line occasionally. We feel like, you know, maybe it's Christmas, maybe it's Easter, maybe it was when we were kids, maybe it was summer camp, but we, we had a cup of coffee with God. Um, we, we said to him at that point, hey, it'd be great to connect again, but we've never really done that. And we feel like he's the God of the universe, he's got a lot of responsibility, he's got a lot of people, certainly he doesn't really want to connect with us. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that, that God is distant? that God is removed, that God doesn't want to really connect with us? If that's something that you've ever felt, and and rest assured, it's something that I've felt before. If that's something that you felt, if that's something that I've felt, then this morning the passage of Scripture we're going to look at is something we desperately need. Because in in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, we see the God who gives us his number, who moves next door, and who gives us his presence. We're going to look at that together as we talk about the one we adore at Christmas and always, the person of Jesus, John 1, 14 through 18. So if you've got a Bible, open up to John 1. We're going to spend our time in these verses today. I'm going to read them for us, and then after I read them, we're going to, we're going to go back and, and unpack them a little bit so that we can understand a little more about what they mean for us in our lives. John 1, beginning in verse 14, John writes and says this, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. As we look at these verses today, we're just going to see a couple of things, a couple of things that will help us know that that God is serious about us knowing Him, a couple of things that will remind us that we have a God who desires to live in relationship with us, and it's demonstrated by what He did for us in Christ, in John 1. The first thing we're going to see is this, that we have the great privilege of adoring the God who came to us, adore God the God 
who came to us. We see this in verse 14. Now, John begins uh, his gospel, and, and he continues this wording in verse 14, and he, he describes Jesus as the Word. In John 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus there. And he continues that story, and he continues that title over in verse 14, when he says, the Word became flesh. Now, why does John call Jesus the Word of God? Why does, he, why does he use that title? I mean, there's a lot of titles he could have used. John is somewhat unique in his application of this title for Jesus. Why does John use it? Well, I think there's a couple of possibilities in this. Uh, both of them relate to who Jesus was. You see, this, this title of the Word was something that would have meant different things for different people in the first century. If you were from a Greek background, a non-Jewish background, then you would have understood this title of the Word to mean the, the, the reason or the rationale that holds all the world together. And in fact, Jesus is, Colossians chapter 1 lets us know, the one who holds the world together. He's the one that spoke forth creation. He, God, God used him in the, in the creation of the world, and he holds it all together. So in, in one sense, Jesus being the Word means he's the cohesiveness that holds it all together. But in another sense, Jesus being called the Word in John 1 has to do with more of a Jewish understanding of this title of the Word. See, a Jew would, would have looked at this, this title of the Word, and they would have understood it to be the expression of, of what was on the inside of God. You know, if somebody speaks forth a word, you, you find out what's going on in their heart and in their life and in their emotion. When they say something, you understand more about them. And in that way, Jesus being the word, Jesus spoke forth God so that we could understand him more. Jesus was the word. But what's, what's interesting about Jesus being the word, Jesus being the divine one, who was there at the beginning, John 1.1. It says in John 1.14 that this Word became flesh, that the eternal God did not cease to be eternal, but He added to Himself something in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. He added a physical body. It's a remarkable thing to think of the God of the universe, the God who created it all, the God that had no beginning and has no ending, that God taking on something as frail and as fragile as a human body. You know, we, earlier we were talking about Mission Norman and the opportunity to, to, to help partner to, for food and for clothing and for, for gifts and those things. All those things are reminders of just how fragile humanity is. Without clothing, without shelter, without food, without water, without air, our, our, our world ceases to exist. We're dependent upon so many things. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the amazing thing is this, the, the eternal God takes upon himself those limitations. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, famously talks about the motivation behind what Jesus was doing when he took this on himself. When Paul writes and says this, he says, Who though he was in the form of God, meaning Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus willingly took upon himself the limitations of humanity. Why? Well, Philippians 2 lets us know that one of the reasons why Jesus took upon himself the limitations of humanity was to show and to live out all of those limitations when he would eventually die on the cross for our sins. One of the the main reasons why Jesus took on humanity. But the other reason why Jesus took on humanity was because he wanted us to know him, because he was going to come to us. And we, we know that by looking at what John says next in John 1.14, after he says the Word became flesh, what did, what did the Word who became flesh do? It says he came and dwelt among us. Literally, it's the idea of, of, of pitching a tent or setting up a tabernacle among his people. It's remarkable to me that Jesus didn't just take on a human body, but, but he took on a human body and then he stuck around for a little while. He made a house. He made a life. He made a living. He grew up with parents. He learned a vocation. Why did Jesus go to that extent? In other words, why did Jesus not just take on humanity as a 33-year-old person that God just just had placed there in Galilee, and he goes immediately to the cross and die? Why the 33 years? Well, the reason why is because God was coming to us. He wanted us to see him live out a life among us so that that we might know who he was and so that we might know that that he really knows us. Now, if you really wanted to know one of these famous people I mentioned earlier, it would really help to live next to him for a while, wouldn't it? Not just to know facts about him, like, like what the score of the game was yesterday or something like that, but to really know him. How do you really know him? Well, you would know them if you, if you lived next to them, if you lived around them, if you saw them respond to adversity, if you saw them relate to their family. You would know more about them in those situations. And in the same way, the Word became flesh and, and, and pitched His tent among us. He, he lived around us. For 33 years, He lived this life so that we might know something more of who God is. What does it look like to really worship? We could look at Jesus' life and see. What does it look like to really love your neighbor as yourself? We could look at his life to see. What does it look like for, for God to really care about us? Does, does God really care? Is he really present? Look at Jesus' life and see. For 33 years, God invested through the person of Christ, a living example to show us what he was like. So we, if you are here today and you are thinking that God is distant and remote and doesn't care about me, We need to read this verse because it describes just the opposite. It says that the eternal God took on flesh and dwelt among us because he wanted you and he wanted me to know him. Now, what's fascinating is as he makes that step, it was all of God who was here. It wasn't just a part of God. It wasn't just a couple of attributes of God. It was a fullness of God that showed up. John 1.14 lets us know that. It, he, he says that we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
In other words, when we see Jesus, when, when people saw Jesus, they were seeing the glory of God. They were seeing the, the fullness of God in Christ. They didn't just get part of him, they, they, they got all of him in his character, in his personality. They were able to see those things as they saw Christ on the earth. As we look at the Scriptures, we're able to see the fullness of God. And what's, what's fascinating is when it says that we, they saw the fullness of God, what does it say that they saw? They saw the fullness of God full of grace and truth. Both of those things. It's really important because it's, it's the temptation of, of us as humans to reduce God to either truth or grace. That's our temptation. God is one or the other. It's very difficult for us to try to reconcile the two. For some in this room, if you, if you see God as a God of truth, and that's all that you see, then the primary thing that you understand about God is that he's perfect, we're not, we're separated He's got standards that we can't attain. All we can get is condemnation if God is just a God of truth. Now, we can know about His holiness. We can know about His standards. We can see the direction He wants our life to go, but we absolutely cannot get there. We cannot achieve it. If we see God as only a God of truth, that's where we find ourselves, is just kind of condemned and separated. God is a subject to learn about, an ideal to to move towards but to never attain. That that is the God of, of, of merely truth. You know, some in this room are here today, and you see God merely as a God of truth. You've got a long list of rules, and nobody ever lives up to them, including yourself. And you're, you're, you're sad, and you're bitter, and you're frustrated, and you're disappointed today. The best you can do is try to climb that ladder of those truthful principles, but you keep falling back down. If God is merely a God of truth, then we have no hope. For others of you, You see God as a God of of grace, but grace alone. That God is the one who who covers over our weaknesses, our flaws, our faults. It's all going to be okay. It's all okay. He loves us no matter what, no matter what we do. It's all okay. It's all okay. It's all okay. And it's difficult for us in in our humanity, in our limited, finite space in our brains, to find a way to reconcile a God who is both graceful and a God who is truthful. I'm so thankful that when Jesus came, he came in the fullness of God so that we could see embodied in one person both grace and truth. You know, the the great example of of this is is the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery from John 8, right? Because this woman who is in the midst of sin is brought and placed at the feet of Christ, and people are trying to get Jesus to pick up a stone and stone her. But did he do that? No. What did he say? He said, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. He gave her grace. But what else did Jesus say? Go and sin no more. He also gave her truth. We have embodied in Christ grace and truth, the fullness of God together. And we need to remember that. As a people, we see that played out in the life of Christ because so many times we want to make God just grace or just truth. And in our world, um, in, in the, the world of our, of our culture, many times we want to make God just a God of grace. American culture, we want God to just be a God of grace. I don't care what God says about uh, or, or what, what morality or, or God's truth might say about having an affair. I want to do it, and God will forgive me. It'll be okay. 
I don't care what God says about this expression of sexuality or that because God's graceful. It's going to be okay. I don't care about stealing or lying or cheating. It's going to be okay. God's graceful. That's what our culture primarily wants to do, and and it needs to be tempered and balanced in the person of Christ with this idea of God as also a God of truth that says that, no, those behaviors and activities, though they may be appealing to you or not best for you, go and sin no more. We need that reminder, that balance. We see that in Christ. At the same time, many inside the church who have grown up inside the church with with all of the commandments and the laws and the rules, we, we're stuck in truth sometimes and we forget the God of grace and we walk around wanting to judge everybody around us. We need to be reminded of the fact that God is graceful and truthful. In the person of Christ, they were reconciled together. We know that because the God of the universe came to us. He came to us and showed us what it looks like to reconcile those two. God may feel distant to you today. God may have felt distant to you for the last year, the last 10 years, the last 20, 30, 40 years of your life. You may think of God as distant, but this right here lets us know that God really does desire to relate to us. He really does want a relationship with us. He came to us. You know, this notion that, that God is distant and removed is something that was prominent among Greek people in Jesus' day. And Leon Morris, Bible commentator, summarized this Greek understanding of God and its contrast with how John presents Jesus and God in in John 1. Leon Morris says this, he says, John and his use of logos, that's the Greek word for word, is cutting clean across one of the fundamental Greek ideas. The Greeks thought of the gods as detached from the world, as regarding its struggles and heartaches and joys and fears with a serene, divine lack of feeling. Anybody here ever ever have a a Greek-like thought like that? You might not think that you're you're Greek, but you you may have an understanding of God that's a little like the Greeks. In contrast, he says, John's idea of logos, though, conveys exactly the opposite. John's logos does not show us a God who is serenely detached, but a God who is passionately involved. We think that God is distant, but in fact, God came close because he wants us to know. That's what the story of Christmas reminds us of. That's what the incarnation is about about us knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God desires a relationship with us. He lived out a life so that we would know him. Now, if that's God's heart and that's God's desire and God does not change, then we ought to be uh, expectant when we go to meet with this God that he will reveal himself to us. When we pick up his word to read it, we ought to come with an expectant heart. God, you have chosen to preserve these words for us. You have lived out their reality in history, and you have preserved these words for us. You have given us your spirit in our hearts so that we might be able to read this and know you. That's the God that we get to adore. That's the God that we get to worship. And knowing that reality, we ought to 
just have a great sense of hope as we gather to worship, as we gather to study His Word, Christmas and always. You see, we get to adore the God who came to us. First thing that we see. The second thing that we're going to see today is this. We also get to adore the God who gives to us. Adore the God who gives to us. Now, we see this in in verses 16 to 18. And it's described in the beginning of, of verse 16 this way. John writes and says, For from the fullness of God we have received grace upon grace. He says that from the fullness of God, in Jesus, the fullness of God was present. And so if the fullness of God is present, we should expect Jesus to behave and act in ways that are consistent with the person and the character of God. And so because that's the case, we should not be surprised that when Jesus shows up, he gives us gift after gift after gift. Because God is primarily a giver and not a taker. That's his character. That's who he is. And so when we see Jesus show up as fully God, we should expect him to give and not take. And and I say that, and I say that in passing, but that's a thought that many in this room are probably going to struggle with even as I say it. Because there are many of you here today that probably don't view God primarily as a giver. You view God as a taker. God is the one who took my wife or child too early. God is the one who um, takes away my, my purpose. God is the one who takes away my, my, uh, my fun with whatever he's got. We, we, we struggle with this idea of viewing God as a taker. And based on your life circumstances and based on what you're going through, you could probably build quite an argument uh, for me and for us about what God has taken from you. And that's part of the, the, the struggle and the reality of life. And, and Job wrestled through that. The Psalms wrestle through that as people pray. But they all come back to the same spot. And that is that God ultimately is not someone who just takes from us, but God is someone who ultimately at his fundamental level is one who gives to us, that God wants to give us things. And when Jesus shows up in the fullness of God, It says it gives us grace upon grace, gift after gift, God gives. Now that phrase, grace upon grace, is an interesting phrase. Literally, in in the original language, it means grace replacing grace. The idea is that it's like waves on a shore. If you ever go to the ocean on, on vacation or something like that, I'm not talking about like high tide at Thunderbird, I mean like real ocean. Um... When, when you go and you see these waves coming into the shore, and, and the, as soon as one wave hits, there's another one right behind it, right? And they just come over and over and over and over again. It's the, the, the amazing beauty of the ocean, just wave replacing wave replacing wave. In the same way, because God is a giver, because that is a part of his character, he gives us grace that replaces grace. He gives us gift after gift. And specifically, I think what John is referring to in John 1 is that God gave a gift of his grace historically in the Old Testament times through Moses and everything God did through that season to Israel. In other words, it was a a gracious gift that God gave. The first wave of gifts that God gave through Moses, he gave 
the foundation of the Old Testament. He gave the law. He gave them the exodus from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He validated it through these miracles. Um, he, he led them into and on the edge of the promised land, and then Joshua helped them settle that. There, there was this whole era of life where God gave a gift of grace to his people, Israel. It was the first wave. And Jesus comes as the next wave, the, the wave replacing the previous wave. Jesus comes and, and trumps and takes to a whole new level the grace that was given to us through Moses. The reason why I think that is uh, because of what John says in verse 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses, wave number one. But right behind that, people of God, comes this incredible tsunami of blessing in the person of Christ. He says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God blessed his people through Moses. God has blessed you and I through Moses. The, the preserving of the Ten Commandments, the, the writing of the first several books of the Bible, things we understand about God and his character through what happened in that era are, are significant. But you know what? God wants more than us just to have a list of laws, a list of rules, and some understanding of some things about his character. You could get that by bumping into him for a couple of minutes in line at lunch. God wants to bless us with something more intense. He wants to bless us with a real relationship. And that's what happens in Christ as the second wave hits. That Jesus wants to offer us something even greater. The fact that Jesus' gift is better than what was offered in Moses is the subject of the book of Hebrews. And we don't have time to read all of it, but that's really the, the singular message of that book. And there's a really interesting set of verses in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, that say this. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, Moses, wave one, as a servant. But then it says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as what? As a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. If you were to go over to a friend's house, would you rather interact with their servant or with their son? Who has more authority? Who has the opportunity to, to give the full relationship of the house? Well, the son does. In Jesus, we, we have more than just somebody to take care of a few little needs, someone to relate to us a few of the truths. But we have someone who is able to offer us far more, a real relationship with God, a real revelation of who God is. Verse 18 of, of John 1 says it this way. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. Jesus has exegeted him. Jesus has explained him in a language and in a way that you and I can understand. See, the reason why Jesus is better than Moses is Jesus didn't just give us another law to follow. He gave us a way to relate to God. He didn't just give us a plan for sacrifices that needed to be offered at some point in time later on, over and over and over again. He was the sacrifice who offered to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven. We have a, a new and a better way. The wave of Christ has replaced the way of the law and made it possible for us to relate to God. Ever. 
God is a giver. We see that through the person of Christ. And when Jesus was on the earth, when people were hungry, he gave them food. When people were sick, he gave them healing. When his disciples were scared, he reminded them of his presence. When they were confused, he taught them. Jesus was giving and giving and giving. But the ultimate expression of the gifts that Jesus gave was found where? At the cross. It was at the cross where Jesus showed the the ultimate effect of his gift. See, humanity was created in the image of God, but because of sin, we were separated from God. And God says that there is a payment that needed to be made because of your sin and mine, and that payment was death. And if it were If Jesus did not intervene, then the death that would have to be paid for every person's sin would be their own death, their own separation from God. But what happens in Christ is that he gives his life on the cross, and he says that that my death on the cross, I'm giving to you, that it would pay the penalty that your sins deserve. And my life and resurrection, I want to give to you as well, that if you trust in my death to pay the penalty for your sins, that, that my life might might provide for you new life in Christ. That's what Jesus is offering to us. But you know what? That present that he wraps up from his giving heart, that he sets under the tree and we get to look at and shake and, and all that this Christmas, that gift is a gift that must still be received in order for it to be effective in our lives. John, earlier in chapter 1, says this. It says that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In other words, it's possible, though this incredible gift is offered, it's possible to reject it. Many have done that. The majority have done that. But, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. You know, as we sit here today, there's an incredible gift that has been presented to you. And you know, in in this room, I believe that there are people here today, here this morning, who have maybe heard some truths about God in the past, who have bumped into Him at line in different seasons and times, but don't really believe that he wants a real relationship with you. I think that there's people here who walked in thinking that. But here's the thing. He's given us his number. He moved next door, and he died on the cross for our sins, that if we would just receive those things, we could have a real relationship with God that is not just for the Christmas season, but that lasts for eternity. And if you are here today and you have not ever placed your faith in Christ, I would implore you that this morning would be the time that you would do that, that you would open by faith this gift that God has given, that you would acknowledge your sinfulness, and you would accept the gift of life through Christ. And for all of us who are here today, my hope and my prayer is that we would, we would not lose sight of the wonder of Christmas. 
the wonder of the fact that we have a God who longs to have a relationship with us so much that he would take on the frailties of humanity, live 33 years so that we might know him, that we might have a relationship with him. At Christmas, we get to remember that fact of the incarnation and celebrate the fact that God truly does desire a relationship with you. And we get to to worship him each and every Sunday. This morning, we're going to conclude our service with an opportunity to adore the name of Christ together. But before we do that, I want to pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be together, the opportunity to worship, to adore you, to lift your name up. We thank you for what you have done for us in Christ, showing us beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us and you care for us and you, you want to provide for us. Uh, but Father, we need to open that gift by faith and, and uh Father, if we do, you promise to give us eternal life as a child of yours. And so, Father, I pray today if there is anyone here who has never placed their faith in Christ, that this morning would be the time that they do that. They acknowledge their sin. They acknowledge the provision of Christ on the cross. And they express their desire to follow you the rest of the days of their life. Father, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. We lift up your name now. In Jesus' name.